This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Me. I'm Virginia Trioli. Each week I ask one person my seven set questions to try to get to the heart of who they really are. But how much can you find out about someone who's always a different person on the screen? Richard E. Grant is an Academy Award nominated actor, presenter, TV star and all-round gentleman. He lives in our hearts from With Nail and I, and he starred in LA Story, Doctor Who, Downton Abbey and Game of Thrones. Richard, how nice to meet you. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Thank you very much. <laughs> can you sing? Uh, I did My Fair Lady for the uh, Sydney Opera Company in 2007. So I have that speak singing. And I've done one movie musical called Everybody's Talking About Jamie playing an old drag queen in which I had uh, two songs. So in a recording studio, yes, possibly. Oh, how nice. Is is that something that that you you wish you could do better is singing something you love? Oh, yeah, I think that's the greatest gift of all to have that, you know. It is, isn't it? Just stand up and open your mouth and people, you know, fall about. Yeah, that's the best. So um, we're talking to you, I think, just several hours after you landed here from London. So sorry about that. No, th- thrilled to be here. Are you, seeing, are you seeing two of me? Is the Four of you. The yeah. <laughs> well, one of them hopefully will know what she's doing in this conversation. soft drinks have exactly. done the trick. <laughs> <laughs> that always does it. You're touring your show, A Pocket Full of Happiness. And mm-hmm. um, I think many of us might know where that phrase comes from, but we'll talk about it in just a moment. And um, just telling the stories of quite a remarkable life that began in a country far, far away before you made the big move to, to London. Um, and is it a life that, that has turned out as you hoped it might as a young boy? Beyond anything that I could possibly imagine, Virginia, because Swaziland, as it was then called, mm. is the smallest country in the Southern Hemisphere. It's 120 <laughs> miles long by you know, 93 miles wide. I did so, not know that. <laughs> you know, could not be smaller if it tried. And when I was there, it was under half a million people. So the, the statistically... I didn't have television when I was growing up either. So the chances of becoming a professional actor from that background is so unlikely. And, um, you know, even at the age of 65 and three quarters, I still feel like I've been let loose in the Swedish shop of fame. And uh, I've never, <laughs> never tired of that. <laughs> nice job. Done well. How were your parents in, in Swaziland? Why was oh, my father was the um, director of education when it was still a British protectorate. And, right. uh, so that's why we were there. And um, that's why I went to school there. I, I understand there is a distinctly different Swaziland accent, which I could possibly get you to do if I asked you. Yeah, well, gosh, I, I can't even remember. Uh, when I got to England, um, when I emigrated in 1982, the, the people that I'm, the directors for jobs that I met in the theatre said, you sound like somebody who speaks English from the 1950s. So uh, <laughs> you better try and get up to speed and be in the 1980s, which is how I then met my uh, wife going to have accent classes with her. That's right, yeah. and it's a beautiful story of the, your meet cute because uh, <laughs> she uh, she taught you uh, the Irish accent in just a couple of lessons, but then you, you had to go back and see her. I did, yeah. Uh, she she gave me three classes for my colonial accent. I sort that, you know, the nothing wrong with a colonial accent, I'll ex- say. But anyway, exactly right. But you know, so that you don't offend the natives of mm-hmm. Britain, um, you know, it got ironed out. And sure. then in January 1983, uh, she said, "I'm coaching on a play at the Royal Shakespeare Company." Because she was an accent dialect coach, and she said it requires a Siswati native speaker, and you're the only person in London who I know speaks the language. So, 
in exchange for dinner at my house, could you put all this dialogue on tape for me? And um, so I did, and I didn't go home that night, missed the last train at midnight, and then essentially that conversation that began in bed in January 1983 ended in bed on the 2nd of September 2021, 38 years later. When she lost her battle with cancer. Yeah. That's a, that's a true love story. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, we never we never stop talking, uh, we never stop sleeping with each other in the same bed. So you know that seems to me the, a journalist once asked me said, you know, how have you survived in show business for that long? And I said, it's as simple as this: never stop talking, never stop sleeping together. It's a wonderful story, and that's where the phrase "a pocket full of happiness" derives from, because mm-hmm. it was a it was an order that she gave you and uh, and your daughter. Yeah, four days before she died, she said, you know, I know that you and our daughter are going to be sad when I'm gone, but. Uh, I challenge you to find a pocket full of happiness in each day. And so we it, it really has become a mantra by which we've navigated the abyss of grief that we've you know, had to deal with over the last 14 months. And it also has a great inbuilt thing of not feeling guilty about feeling happy or mm. joyful about stuff. Because, you know, here I'm in Melbourne, you know, do this one-man show and the weather is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, for now. Here I'm talking to you. So, you know, for now, while it lasts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and getting the pocket full of happiness out of that and not feeling guilty. We'll take it while we can. Let's get to some of the questions in You Don't Know Me. Okay. You'd never know it, but I... I'm allergic to alcohol, which I found out when I was 16, and I'm addicted to Barbara Streisand. <laughs> we'll take the first and then we'll go to the second. Okay. What was their first experience with alcohol like and what were you drinking? Uh, I tried to drink uh, spirits or beer, anything, when I was a teenager, um, peer pressure, and I couldn't keep it down for more than 10 minutes. So I had a, went to the doctor and I said, is it psychosomatic? Because my father was an alcoholic. And he said, no, we'll do a blood test. He said, you are allergic to alcohol. It's completely toxic. You have no enzyme in your system. You can never, ever drink. Wow. So, and did that feel like a, a relief? Or a burden? or uh, A relief in that I said, well, what do I do um, socially? And he said, order a ginger ale and people will leave you alone. And that proved to be simple and true. Good advice. It's interesting to leave you alone because, I mean, in a culture like Australia and particularly in England, just imagine. And I've been there. I've been the person and I'm ashamed of myself, you know, saying, no, come on, just have a drink, which I don't do anymore. But it just, you must have felt that pressure from time to time. Oh, hugely. So by having a ginger ale, then people leave you alone. How great. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) what's it like watching all of us get increasingly tanked as the evening goes on? Uh, That's all right. Until the repetition begins. As soon as somebody starts (laughs) or somebody gets a bit leery and comes and says, ah, why aren't you drinking? That's the moment you just say, I'm just going to the bathroom. And then you, you know, scarper. You smoke bomb out of here. Exactly. How nice. And addicted to Barbara Streisand. Yes. Thank you for saying your name correctly. (laughs) When did that begin? Oh, 1969. I saw in Funny Girl uh, when I was 12 years old. And, of course, I secretly wanted to become an actor. And so I'd followed the career of Donald Sutherland, who I'd seen in a 1967 movie Mm -hmm. called Dirty Dozen. He was over six foot tall, grew up in a tiny town in Canada, had a long face. And I thought, oh, it's possible to be an actor and look not like Robert Redford. And then I saw Barbara (laughs) with her long face and her long nose. And I thought, oh, you know. Goodbye, Donald. Here's the one. <laughs> and then I saw her in WhatsApp Doc when I was yeah, 15 at full hormonal storm, and she just looked absolutely, unbelievably gorgeous. So from then onwards, I have been obsessively following her. And instead of, you know, passing through adolescence and growing up and maturing and letting all those 
um, teenage idolatries disappear, <laughs> um, it has remained. Have you met her? Yeah, I have, multiple times now. What was the first meet like? Uh, the first time I met her was during... Uh, while well, I was filming a Robert Altman film called The Player in 1990 oh, yeah. in Los Angeles, and I had a 22-minute conversation with her, but she didn't know me from a bar of soap. I then sub- and I had written a fan letter to her when I was 14. <laughs> and then <laughs> when I met her at the Oscars, just straight after that, she knew who I was, and she'd also tweeted a reply to my reposted Twitter of my fan letter, um, which absolutely undid me. And then Melissa McCarthy, who I'd been nominated for this film, can yes. you forgive me? Uh, did this extraordinary thing at the Governor's Ball straight after the Oscars. She said, Barbara Streisand, meet Richard E. Grant, Richard E. Grant, meet Barbara Streisand. I didn't win the Oscar, but I felt I had one goal that night by meeting her. How amazing. Her favourite song of yours? Uh, oh, my goodness me. Uh, it's a song from very early in her career from the musical Oliver, and it's called Who Will Buy? It's very, very simple yeah. and um, absolutely I, beautiful. I know that song very well. I won't try and sing it, although I'm dying to. I, I, okay. Unlike you, I, I have no voice, but I so wish that I did. But it's just too high to sing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's, absolutely beautiful song. That's lovely. Um, I think... I think Funny uh, Funny Face, no, funny, funny, girl. Face, funny Girl, sorry, is just one of the loveliest films. And uh, and she's just luminous in that movie, absolutely I agree. luminous. I agree. I can only agree with everything that you're saying, Judith. Thank you very right, much. We've discovered the great love. All right. It wasn't the question, but we got that as well. So we got a bonus answer there. The Fork in the Road I almost took was... Oh, my father was very, very determined. He was the you know, director of education. He was very worried about me becoming an actor. He said, you'll spend your life destitute in makeup and tights, narrowly avoiding a buggery, all of which, of course, come true. <laughs> Great phrase. And, uh, <laughs> so he was very keen that I become a barrister. He said, you're argumentative and provocative. You've got a good brain. You know, go and argue in law courts. And I said, mm, that's not really what I want to do. Did you start down the path? No, that's as close as I got. You know, okay. I was hell-bent on what I was going to do. Really? Yeah. When did it get you? What, do do, oh, when do I was you remember seven. a moment? Yeah. I was made, there a movie? Was there a... No, I made shoebox theatres when I was seven years old. And I've got photographs of that with little uh, lollipop sticks with cut-out figures on them and bed, bedside light over the top of it, you know, painted scenery that I made. Glove puppets and marionettes. Um, so the, the, <laughs> the, the, the line has been pretty clear all the way through. So you could have back. been a director. I have directed. Yeah, I have directed one film called Wawa about my childhood which came out in 2006 Oh I remember Wawa, um, yes so, and I'm hopefully going to be directing another movie next year It's been an incredibly broad career for you I mean, It has because you know, I'm so old oh, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't always happen Some end up at the end of their career and it hasn't been as broad as yours And um, We were talking before about the, the, the 27 percenters which you know, you've been in your time yeah. as well as being you know, the lead and, and, and the star too but there is something about that actor who can walk on no matter how small or incidental the role and just you know, illuminate and be the one that your eyes immediately drawn to Were you did you become aware at a certain point in your career that I, I, I've got that quality, I am that person? Uh, no, and I'm still astonished that you even say that. So, listeners, you should know that I've just passed over a large blank cheque to Virginia <laughs> to say all this stuff. <laughs> yes, and I intend to cash it and take him to lunch. Good. But um, really? Uh, Magda Sabansky's beaten you to that. Yeah. <laughs> ah, has she? Yeah. Damn it. Um, you know, she, she beats me to everything, pretty much. Really, unaware of that, of that quality. 
Yeah, because it's it's an odd thing that you never you never see yourself as other people see you. So, mm. I think that the common denominator for actors, without exception, that I've worked with over the last forty years, is this con- uh, uh, formula of l- uh, large ego, low self esteem. Absolutely, and that I goes all right. the way through. And it's a yeah. contradiction because people who are civilians find it very odd because they think you sound very confident, you look confident, but you. You have to have the confidence to go. Please give me this job over Virginia. But once you've got it, you think I'm not worthy of. I'm not worthy of that. So it's a an odd combination. I think you're right. It, it is a commonplace, and and it's yeah. true. Um, it explains also why so many people come to this conversation and answer that first question. You'd never know it, but I, and say I'm an introvert, and yeah. they are actors and performers and singers and dancers. Full of doubt. Yeah, and and the audience. I know they roll their eyes and go, Oh, not another one. <laughs> and I don't know how to say yes, but they all are. Yeah. You I'm know, not an introvert. No, well, and no. why do you think that is? Oh, because I was annoyingly born with um, uh, the DNA of glass three quarters full, you know, and it annoys the hell out of the bombs because they go, <laughs> why are you so enthusiastic and curious about yes, everything? Yes, that's you know, true. calm down, be more grumpy. <laughs> <dot com. laughs> Look for the lipstick stain and the chip on the glass. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, I'm the opposite. But, the, but you, so you derive your energy then from other people and being around people? Hugely, yeah. Yeah. Oh, how interesting. No, yeah, that makes that. you very, very un-English. The very un-English <laughs> Richard E. Grant is with you today answering the questions. I always... I always told my wife that I loved her every single night before we went to sleep over 38 years. Before telling her you loved her mm-hmm. on one or two occasions, had there been maybe words or an argument? Did oh, you ever oh, go to med- there bed were, anger? and yes. we had we had a golden rule that uh, we'd never would go to bed on a row, even if it was like, "Don't touch me, don't come near me," all that stuff that happens in every relationship. <laughs> I love you, but get away. Um, I did this thing once. I learned from an acting class: if you hold the person's face, who is feeling very venomous towards you at that particular moment, it's very hard for them to maintain that <laughs> level of venom. Even if they're like drenching against you, just hold their face and say, I love you. I know that I'm in the wrong. I know I'm a terrible person, but I love you. <laughs> and it finally sort of, it's sort of, yeah, it, well, it worked for us. That's, I recommend it. That's so interesting. A former <laughs> High Court judge here who's uh, very well known was um, interviewed in a, in a rather personal way about his life and the great love of his life. And he said, in any relationship, there has to be the one person who's always prepared to 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 just bend and move mm-hmm. and go, to say, okay, darling, fair enough, it was me, and, and just move on. And I remember hearing that thinking, really? You know, because <laughs> the two of us in our relationship might sort of, you know, keep our corners for quite some time. Do you think that's true? Was there someone in yours who was the bender? Oh, yeah, um, because in our relationship, I was my, the predominant characteristic of my character is feminine masculine, and my wife's was masculine feminine. So I was the one who was ready to you know, lie down, legs up in the air and negotiate and acquiesce. <laughs> Whereas the alpha males, which you may be one of yourself, oh, gosh. Um, they don't, you know, they've got to be King Kong dominant. So once you know that dynamic, oh, it's very dear. easy. I think Richard E. Grutt's teaching me things about myself this morning. It's very uncomfortable. But it, it was, it, it's really interesting to hear you reflect on, on life, you know, with your wife and life afterwards and the way you speak about grief is in, is incredibly moving and I think I think possibly valuable for a lot of people too. Thank you. It, it puts me in mind of, I, I know that when um, Damien Lewis lost Helen McCrory, mm-hmm. who's, you know, both actors of whom I'm a huge, huge fan, and she said this thing to him where she said, now look, I know 
you know, and she's speaking to the children as well, you know, daddy's going to end up, you know, <laughs> dating somebody else and marrying somebody else and he'll, you know, be with someone else. I'm, I know that's certain and I'm happy with that. But don't pick up someone at the funeral. Just... <laughs> Just wait a little bit longer and try and, you know, bide your time. The assumption being that, you know, this glorious, gorgeous man is not going to be on the market long. How do you feel about the prospect of another love, another person? I, I can't conceive of it right now. And I'm astonished. I know, Damien, that he is already, you know, a year later is coupled up with somebody else. And, you know, good for him. But Helen was my, right. Yeah. My <laughs> wife did this extraordinary thing that a week before she died, she... Uh, she said, oh, what do you think of so-and-so? What do you think of Virginia? And I realised that all 20 women that she was talking about were single and available. And she basically she detonated you every up. single one of them. And I said, I know exactly what you were doing. So she was like a lioness, like, don't mess with my patch. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved her all the more for doing that. How fantastic. Yeah. I never. Eat dairy. Anything that comes out of udder, I will avoid. I mean, I like cooking with butter. Mm -hmm. You know, steak cooked in butter is one of the great delights of life, but I could no more put it on a piece of bread or drink a glass of milk than run to the nearest vomitorium. So is it because it, um, it nauseates you? or Is it, me, is it yeah. a political thing? Is it about no, being vegan? Not political at all. I, uh, I've loathed the smell and the taste of it. Chocolate and cheese, all dairy stuff since I could, before I could walk. Ladies and gentlemen, this is how you keep such a slim frame at this age. You eschew dairy. Oh Says dear. Virginia, who is sitting on three seats because she's so well, enormous. E exactly right. And sort of put away a block of chocolate last night. So don't, better not say that around you. <laughs> The time I got it terribly wrong was? Uh, the time I think I got it terribly wrong was believing that when I was 12 years old, when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, put, foot, put footsteps on the moon in um, July 1969, I thought, like every other kid of my age, that I could become an astronaut. But as I failed all of my maths, <laughs> the last <laughs> maths result I got was 9% for my mock O-level in 1973. <laughs> The chances of becoming an astronaut were impossible. So I've always hoped that I'd be in a space movie, but that has never happened. The closest I got to was uh, the final Star Wars film, R Rise of Luke Skywalker. That's as close as I got to being in outer space as my boy boyhood dream. What was it about that time? Because anyone who's your age and yeah. older recalls that in exactly the same way. There's not a single person apart from the conspiracy theorists yes. who remember that time as anything other than wondrous and full of optimism and capacity and promise and everything else afterwards being a bit of a disappointment. But how would you remember those times? Uh, just astonishing because, you know... Uh, the idea that you could get to the moon seemed so impossible and ne never mind a man actually stepping onto it mm. and my big terror listening to it on the radio or the wireless as we called it because there was no television in Swaziland was that it the Apollo wouldn't lift off I thought oh the jets are not you know it's going to be lift off and get back to the to the mothership mm. circling the moon so it was to try and describe that to people now there, there's an amazing movie made in Australia called The Dish that's absolutely... One, one of our wonderful, wonderful, great Sam films. Sam Neill and Rob Enormously Longo proud of it. Yeah, yeah. and it, yeah, it just absolutely captured the excitement at that time, which you, you can't tell people now. You know, mm. Somebody just uh, done a heart transplant a couple of years before and then they land on the moon. I thought, well, it can't get better than this. So... 
That's why. I read an interesting article recently that, that argued that all of Western civilization had been in a decline since the moon landing. You can basically track it, that it's all gone to hell right. pretty much since then. No, I don't believe that. I think it's better now than it ever was. Do you really? Yeah, I really do, because I, my, uh, Joan's mother, who was Scottish, called Maggie Cook, died when she was 94. And she said to me, if you've lived through the Second World War, everything else is... Yeah, caviar compared to what mm. they endured. And she said, you know, all these financial things that we're going through, or climate change, all these things that we think are so devastating, um, compared to f- going through that experience of the war, everything is good. So I feel, you know, annoyingly optimistic about the world. Richard E. Grant, who's annoyingly optimistic, is answering <laughs> the questions today. It's a small thing, but I'm still so proud that I... Uh, never stopped following my dream that I had when I was seven years old of becoming an actor in real life. And I suppose a bit like Pinocchio, that you know, you it is possible to to fulfil a dream that was initially secret and very much derided, and then you know succeed in you know keeping pretty much employed um, until the age of sixty-five and counting. I mentioned with Nail and I, um, there's so many others I can mention. Downton Abbey is a a favourite for many people recently. The Age of Innocence, I thought you were brilliant in. Thank you. I I don't know many people mentioned LA Story, but I thought your comedic turning, that was just absolutely perfect. (laughs) And the great clanging ball scene, I will always remember. (laughs) It's a a personal favourite. What are are the favourites of yours? Uh, The first film that I was ever in that you mentioned with Nail and I, because none of us had made a Richard Griffiths who played Uncle Monty had been in a movie before but the rest of us were all virgins to the experience so I've maintained great friendships with all the people in that film and it has its ongoing cult life and writing directing my autobiographical film Wawa in 2004 which came out 2006 was the most creatively fulfilling job that I've ever done because everybody listens to what you finally decide to do as opposed to being an actor where you have to say somebody else's words follow somebody else's direction and then somebody else edits how you're going to be whereas mm. if you're the final arbiter of and um, decision maker that is extremely satisfying <laughs> for a detail obsessive control freak that i am <laughs> is there a role you've always wanted to play and haven't yet yes i would like to get tarantino quentin tarantino to write me the part of a sleazy uh failed Las Vegas singer to be in something or in a western or both oh that's excellent like. yeah. that would be great that's what I like I could see you washed up in a sort of a 1960s style Las Vegas hotel thank you <laughs> with lots of ginger beer, lots <laughs> on, of ginger beer on the beer, set yeah. you know <laughs> masquerading as the other stuff my secret pleasure or my guilty pleasure your choice eating a Christmas pudding once a month Every month? Every month, yeah. I had one two days ago before I came here. And uh, in, Janu- <laughs> in the January sales, they're literally throwing them yeah, out yeah, like yeah. old footballs and out of can, the stores and in sales. And you can have them in the cupboard for a year. Oh, yeah, I've got a pantry that's loaded up. They're, I've got enough Christmas pudding to see me out. You so, are so funny. Yeah, okay, I love them. I have a few questions. Do they all have silver coins in them? They don't, but I, interesting that that shows your age, Virginia. Mm. Because, no hiding that, sweetheart. Uh, no, because we used to have, in Swaziland, we used to have a collection of sixpences that used to go into the Christmas oh, yes. pudding. Um, I don't do that now. No, <laughs> those sixpences are long gone. No. And what do you serve it with? Uh, lychee sorbet. 
Excuse me. That's what I like. It's a bit posh. Yeah, Lychee a bit silver. Posh. I thought yeah. you were going to say something like, you know, um, hard sauce or, you know, runny custard or something. No, or, revolting. No. Custard is, you know. Oh, from sorry, the, the milk. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, awful, can't awful do that. Okay. Yeah. Can't Any do sorbet. And it doesn't have to be lychee. <laughs> That's my favourite. You know, lemon sorbet, anything to cut through the uh, incredible sweetness of well, all the fruit. Well, they're, they're all in the stores right now because we, for some strange reason we eat Christmas pudding in a in a uh, hot summer Christmas here in Australia. So I hope you'll go home with some. Oh, I will do. Okay, I'll make sure someone sends you it. Thank um, you, Gina. I'll keep you to that. <laughs> Richard, it's been an absolute delight having you here. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Virginia. Thank you for having me. You Don't Know Me is presented by me, Virginia Trioli, produced by Kelsey Rotino, Jules Hay and Shelley Hadfield, with thanks to Katrina Palmer. Audio production by Ross Kay. On the next episode of You Don't Know Me, a very special guest and a very special guest host. You you lost your glasses just now. They're in your hand. Yes. You're a bit nervous. I'm totally flustered. My heart's beating like a bird under a blanket, I can tell you. It's, it's very Why? worrying. Why? <laughs> Uh, I went specifically into this line of work so I didn't have to answer questions, Matt. Yes. (laughs) That's on the next episode of You Don't Know Me. And if you're looking for other great stories from around Australia, you can dive into the Story Stream, continuous Australian stories right here on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Tegan Taylor. And I'm Dr Norman Swan. And before you enjoy Virginia's next guest, we want to invite you to listen to CoronaCast. Norman, didn't I just hear you on an episode of You Don't Know Me? Well, you obviously don't know me, but yes. <laughs> well, I, know, I, do, I do know you now. Yeah, I had a chat with Virginia a few episodes ago. You can go back and listen to it right now. It's episode two and you can make up your own mind about it. <laughs> As for our podcast, the one that you and me make together, it covers all the latest news on COVID-19 and it has been since the beginning of the pandemic and we're still going. And you can find it now on the ABC Listen app and learn to know us. Get to know us better.